According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs 1.1 1, 1 this morning. We have had several classes already in introduction. According to the bulletin, this is class number 6. Is that correct? Class number six, okay. Well then, we're going to consider the introduction over, although much of what we're going to do today will also be introductory. Um, And I I bounce back and forth. I'm going to do some study on Solomon, the person, and background on Solomon. And of course, you can do background on Solomon uh, as far as introduction is concerned. You can do background on Proverbs as far as Proverbs is concerned. But since uh, Proverbs 1.1 says the Proverbs of Solomon, I thought, okay, let's just go ahead and start Proverbs 1.1 and start developing uh, the Proverbs of Solomon. What are the Mishle Shalomo? All right, as it says on the screen, Mishle Shalomo. What is a Mashal? All right, and what are the Mishle? We know that they are his because they are claimed by him here in this verse, the Proverbs of Solomon. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God the Father to bless our time of study today, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and we thank you for the opportunity we have to assemble together. We pray for your grace for your mercy for your protection hedge us about father hinder anyone that would want to come in here and and disrupt what we're doing or bring us to harm we thank you father in jesus christ's name amen all right proverbs chapter one solomon son of david king of israel you know how much fun you can have with this sentence (laughs) solomon where do you put your comma um is he the son of david king of israel Or is he Solomon, the son of David, Solomon, king of Israel? In other words, that phrase, king of Israel, do we attach it to David or do we attach it to Solomon? All right, just as a, as a, uh, in apposition, does it connect to David? Does it connect to Solomon? Truthfully, it matters not because they're both true. All right. Uh, Solomon is the son of David, king of Israel. Uh, He's also Solomon, king of Israel. Okay. Be that as it may. This is who we're going to be looking at. Uh, Proverbs presents the Davidic paternity. Proverbs presents the Davidic paternity of Solomon in Proverbs 1.1, while Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, adds the Bathshebic maternity. All right? I added, I made it my own word, Bathshebic. All right? And I hope to collect royalties on that if other people start using the adjective Bathshebic. Bathsheba is the adjectival form of Bathsheba, his mother. And we want to understand both. And I think if we, if we lock in on the Davidic, then uh, we're in good shape as far as the uh, politics. We're in good shape as far as the um, spiritual covenant. We're in good shape as far as the lineage of Christ from um, David to Solomon. But we miss out on the fact that the uh, Bathsheba component must be understood as well, particularly because she 
was the key to the um, to the transition of power. When Solomon attained the throne, he would not have attained the throne uh, had it been up to David. It required Bathsheba to get him on the throne. And I'm talking earthly terms here, okay? Obviously God's sovereignty does what God's sovereignty does. Likewise, the Bathshebic influence in Solomon's life. We want to understand that because it's going to be portrayed time and time again in these first nine chapters of Proverbs. Time and time again, it's the emphasis on father and mother in the book of Proverbs. And if we're maladjusted, if we're maladjusted between the Davidic influence and the Bathshebic influence, if we're maladjusted, or if any, any young man is maladjusted in his father's influence versus his mother's influence, it's going to damage him down the road. All right? And I think we're going to see that. I think the process of this is going to be clear. That had he been better adjusted to Bathsheba, then um, perhaps he would not have had the thousand women. All right? And perhaps we would have had the book of... of uh, uh, we probably still would have had Ecclesiastes, but maybe we wouldn't have ended up with the the, uh, the thousand women and the train wreck in uh, in Song in Song of Solomon. So we'll have some more things to say about that as well. Uh, take a look at Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is remarkable for a lot of reasons. Uh, five, at least, um, female reasons in uh, Matthew chapter one. And uh, you know you've got. We're accustomed to genealogical records. We're accustomed to um, the the importance of them in a Jewish context, given the fact that Israel was a tribal uh, nation, given the fact that Israel as an earthly people, as a covenant nation of God, had tribal blessings and promises and prophecies, and so thereby the the, the father of, father of, father of is, is vital, because that's where the, the tribal descent came from. Uh, so you're reading Genesis 5, you're reading Genesis 10, you're reading First Chronicles, you're going through all of the uh, lineage uh, sections of the Bible, and what you have is the names of the fathers. You don't have the names of the mothers. Even when we know the names of the mothers, they're not given in the genealogical tables. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are five female names, and this is extraordinary. So the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that condenses things into two primary uh, uh, patrilineal descents. Abraham, of course, establishes him as the heir to the Abrahamic covenant. David uh, establishes him as the heir to the Davidic covenant. And all the other names in between, they're understood, but they're not necessary to be stated here as a chapter heading. So he is Jesus the Messiah, he is the son of David, he is the son of Abraham. And now the details. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Does it matter who those brothers were? Does it matter what the other tribes are? No, it doesn't matter because Judah is the line of Christ. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Now notice, by Tamar. Why all of a sudden are we mentioning her name? Why does she come up? And I believe it's critical. I, th- I think it's... it's um, a wonderful blessing for us to understand the God of grace, the God of unconditional covenants, the God of uh, an eternal purpose that's not thwarted by human failure. All right. Also to recognize the role of uh, of uh, the, the tough spot that women are in when their husbands are out of sorts and the uh, tough spot that uh, men are in when they are the objects of promises and put themselves out of sorts. 
You'll see what I'm talking about when we get to... I mean, we're, we're dealing with David and Bathsheba, right? I mean, this this is the pinnacle of grace in action. Okay? I can't imagine a marriage getting started under worse circumstances. It would be hard for Hollywood to invent uh, a worse way to start a marriage than adultery and murder, right? Anyway, that's how David and Bathsheba got started. Okay. Let me get back to this. All right, Judah was the father of Perez by Zerah, uh, Perez and Zerah by Tamar, mentioning her name. And uh, go back to Genesis 38 if you want more story on Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. All right, this is what we're used to. Father, son, father, son, father, son. Um, kind of weird that one woman was thrown in there, but okay, we'll deal with it. Salmon was the father of Boaz by, oh, wait a minute, now there's another woman. Okay, why all of a sudden this woman? As I mentioned, this is going to happen five times. Five female names in this uh, genealogy. Now what's up with uh, Rahab? Well, she's a harlot. She's a Gentile harlot, all right? And she's not uh, the former harlot. She's the harlot, which some people struggle with. All right, and uh, she is the mother of uh, Boaz, the great hero of uh, of uh, the book of Ruth, and, and which now here's our other woman. Here's our third woman now. So as you're counting these anyway, we have, we have Tamar, we have Rahab, we have Ruth, we have um, Bathsheba in verse 6, and then ultimately when you get down to the end of this, you have Mary in verse 16, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all these generations, he is the son of Abraham, the son of David, and the son of these five extraordinary women including the subject for today's study, Bathsheba. The Bathsheba maternity for Solomon is huge. The Bathsheba maternity, I think, is, uh, and we have some, a lot of information and more that we don't know, but I think we see the difference between Solomon and Absalom, the difference between Solomon and Amnon, the difference between Solomon and the, his half-brothers, the step-brothers that brought grief to uh, to David, and recognize that when we read through the Proverbs and we read about how a wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. All right, that beyond the fact that these are just principles of wisdom, we have the Old Testament record to show us who they're talking about. They're talking about Amnon and Absalom and and Abiathar and um, Adonijah. I meant to say, not Abiathar, Adonijah, and Solomon, all right? And all of them, they were all sons of David. They were all had different mothers, okay? They all had different mothers. And so what's the difference between Bathsheba and Egla or, or uh, any of the other wives, okay? And I've got handouts here too, by the way, where you can have a scorecard for all of Solomon's wives. If you're going to be uh, polygamous, keep a scorecard, all right? I'm just saying, you got to have a list of names to keep track of things. Thank you, Dan. By the way, you have this already because this is, uh, I ripped this off out of the Life of David notebook. Okay, it's in the introductory material in the Life of David notebook. So that's why it says uh, page 5, page 6, and page 7. Don't, don't feel like your handout is mislabeled. Uh, your handout is just simply photocopied out of the Life of David notebook, pages 5, 6, and 7. That's where those came from. Okay. So, what is the deal with this 
maternity. And why do we want to understand both the paternity and the uh, maternity, okay, um, with respect to not only Solomon, but with respect to the book of wisdom, with respect to how children are raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And what is the father's role in that? What is the mother's role in that? How are they combined in the upbringing of that child? And uh, how you instill the word of God into them. That's what Proverbs is going to give us. Point B, David's greatest failure was Bathsheba. No question on that. Not just, that's my, I started to say that was my opinion, but then I found a Bible verse to back me up. All right? Um, I believe it's God's opinion as well that David's greatest failure was Bathsheba. It was the adultery and murder of, of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. David's greatest failure was Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11. God's judgment upon David created hardship and heartache for his polygamous house. So let's go back to 2 Samuel and remind ourselves how this all happened. 2 Samuel 11. New American Standard Bible even created a pericope heading at the top of chapter 11 that says Bathsheba, David's great sin. All right. And we'll uh, won't spend the whole hour on this, but it is uh, significant. We I think we took about I don't know how many weeks, eleven weeks, something. We spent a lot of time on David and Bathsheba when we uh, were doing Life of David way back in the day. All right, so um, chapter eleven, and then. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 12. By the time we get to his judgment, hopefully we'll understand that. Hardship and heartache. Hardship and heartache. There is a place for them. It's the sorrow that brings forth repentance. It's the discipline within life. We we face consequences both in time and in eternity. We're going to discuss what hardship and heartache are all about as part of the uh, the temporal life impact of God's hand of discipline. But first... uh, the sin itself. Uh, it happened in the spring, the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. And uh, you'll recall, if you were here at this in this class, um, you will recall that kings are supposed to go out to battle, but David simply delegated it. David had other things to do, all right? His nation's at war, but He's not much engaged. Okay, he'll he'll send people to do stuff, but he's got other things going on. Okay, if your political leader is doing that, pray for him. Okay, and when evening came, David arose from his bed. Let me ask you something: If you're not getting out of bed until night falls, right? When evening came, David arose from his bed. What were you doing all day? This kind of shows you the party mentality. Party all day, all night, sleep all day. Waking up at the crack of sundown so you can go out and party some more. Okay. Walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. I would love to read verse 3 and say, David immediately averted his eyes, <laughs> went downstairs, posted a guard, to say, uh, 
you know, this roof is now off limits, right? This time of day, I want no one up on that roof, especially me. Well, that's not what he does. Yeah, I mean, if, if he was, this, this tells us where his mind is. This tells us where his thought process is, what he's thinking about, um, where his attitudes are, okay? If, if he was up on the roof praying, having fellowship with the Lord and writing, maybe writing another psalm or something, all right, then he would do as I said, or something similar. He would avert his eyes and not look and go down and, like I say, post a guard and say, this roof is off limits, all right? Or at least maybe um, dispatch somebody to that woman's house and, you know, offer to construct a screen or, <laughs> you know, can I help you build a fence or something? Um, all right. Instead, he uh, sent, he sent. What does that mean? It means he doesn't budge. He stays on the roof. Okay? It means he doesn't budge. In fact, he brings more people up there with him. He sent and inquired and said, who is this? And he brings all the guards up. And they're all up there looking down at that girl. Okay? And one said, and one said, a certain one said, imagine what all the other ones said. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Finally, one of them said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of uh, Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now right there, we got some huge indicators in this chapter. Okay, she's not a nobody. She's not, um, uh, when we understand who she is, she's the daughter and granddaughter of very significant people in Israel. Okay, and the wife of one of his mighty men. Wife of a mighty man, the daughter of a mighty man, and the granddaughter of his chief counsel, of his advisor, Ahithophel. Okay, because Ahithophel is the father of Eliam got to put scripture to scripture to connect that the point being she a lot of a lot of commentaries portray this as a as a rape a lot of this a lot of the commentaries portray this as well maybe it wasn't exactly a rape rape but it was what could she do he was the king so even if she protested um you know there was really not a lot she could have said or could have done that is absolutely false all right there is much she could have done much she didn't do and the scripture itself describes her complicity in the activity. We'll discuss that. If you want more, there's teaching on that. All right. So we know who her dad is. We know who her husband is. We know who her grandfather is. Now, her husband's not in the picture. He's off fighting a war. We know that for a fact. But And possibly her dad could have been off fighting a war. But we know that her grandfather's not. We know that there are other family members there as well. She has resources. So David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. Now, um, when did that take place? It all sounds like that's the same night. It's not the same night. The language on this, and again, we detailed it, days are passing. He sent messengers and he took her. When did he send messengers? Probably that very night. Maybe not. When did he take her? Not that very night. And when did she come to him? Not that very night. And when did he lay with her? Not that very night. Because um, when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, 
The best thing you've got to do is you've got to move your comma there in verse 4 because it's not punctuated well according to the Hebrew of this verse. You've got a, uh, and this is good for Lewis. Lewis likes to talk about commas and semicolons. So here we go, okay? Commas and semicolons. Um, the way this is punctuated, right? Punctuation's important. You ever read Lynn Truss? Okay, eat shoots and leaves. Okay, punctuation is critical because it looks like he sent messengers and took her. And there's no punctuation and that's just all crammed together. He sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. That sounds very instantaneous, okay? However, the when she purified herself from her uncleanness, it seems in this punctuation to be connected to she returned to her house. She returned to her house. Okay, so the order on that. It seems like, the way it's poorly punctuated, it seems like, all right, Bathsheba took her bath. She's at home. She's already had a bath, okay? So it sounds like she's, uh, and and the cleanness here, it seems like it's not hygiene, okay? Okay, because she's already had a bath. Now, the way it's punctuated, it seems like she took her bath, came back downstairs, guards were there from the king saying, hey, King David wants you, and boom. Ten minutes later, they were in the bedroom and woohoo, okay? That's not what happened. And then it seems like, right, it seems like she's in the bedroom and they're finished and she has to purify herself from her uncleanness first in David's palace and then she can go back to her house. So it makes it seem like it was a very fast roller coaster that raced her into bed and then a very slow process by the time she finally made it back to her house. Okay? And that's wrong. That is not the Hebrew of this verse. Okay? What you need to do is take that phrase, when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, and point it forward to their um, laying together. So he lay with her when she had purified herself from her uncleanness. That's the delay. That's the delay. The delay was before the sex. Okay? Not, it wasn't a delay before she could go home. The delay was before the sex. All right. Why is that significant? Because, well, beyond the fact that that's what the text says, it's also significant because the delay is the opportunity to not do it. The delay is the opportunity to get help. The, the delay is to ask uh, your father, your grandfather, uh, family members, uh, fellow guards that know Uriah. Um, the delay is to not do the activity. But they did the activity. That's the point. All right. Not to mention the fact, if you're involved in sin... Why do you care about the ritual? <laughs> I mean, the ritual is, is for someone that's trying to maintain a standing before, um, before the, uh, the holiness of God to take part in Passover or Pentecost or one of the feasts or to, to go into the temple or to take part in the, uh, in the thing. I mean, that's what it sounds like there. 
after she purified herself, right? And everyone wants to go to Leviticus and they want to read about uh, the ritual. They want to read about uh, the fact that after you have a baby, you are ceremonially unclean. You cannot take part in Passover. You cannot take part in any of the feasts. You cannot uh, for a week, for seven, or, or um, it's twice as long if you have a girl, right? If you, if it's a, if you have a, a, a male child, it's one length of time. If you have a daughter, it's, it's double the length of time, okay? Um, and same thing for the men. If you have marital relations, you are unceremonially unclean until the, the sun goes down on the next day. Now, why, I mean, it's, it's ludicrous that fornicators would then want to try to make sure they're ceremonially pure before she sneaks back into her house unseen. I mean, there's going to be household staff that are going to wonder where she's been during that whole time of purification. Okay? All right. Anyway, it makes much more sense if the delay is ahead of things, if the delay is before they come together. If you want more on that, we have uh, teaching there. Now, uh, she returned to her house. Again, no alarm is raised. Uh, she could have raised an alarm after the, uh, before the ha- beforehand. She could have raised the alarm after the fact. Uh, she could have petitioned the king to divorce her husband and become part of his harem. He's got several other women at this point. Um, no, she returns to her house. She intends to remain Uriah's wife and uh, stay silent about it until she finds out she's pregnant. That's verse 5. So the woman conceived, she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Again, this uh, is her complicity. This is her uh, participation with the cover-up. David sent to Joab, and we know the rest of this is what happens here. Bring Uriah uh, to me. So Uriah comes and Basically, he wants a status update. Hey, how's the war going? Tell me how the war is going. Okay, great. Thanks. Now well, go home to your wife. All right. The idea being, if Uriah goes home, then everyone will believe that uh, that the baby is his. Unfortunately, uh, verse nine, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house and did not go down to his house. Notice, with all the servants of his lord. The chapter goes on repeatedly in different places to talk about all these servants, all these servants, all these servants. There's servants everywhere. There's all kinds of eyewitnesses, including the people that David had up on the roof looking down at her taking her bath. There are tons of witnesses. All right, so um, verse 10, when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, why are they telling him that? Because the servants are a part of the, the cover-up. The servants are a part of the team, right? Like the secret service, uh, service agents that are helping to keep Bill and Hillary apart when Energizer's around, all right? That's, uh, you've got to have a full staff to keep your uh, adultery uh, provided for. Well, that's what these servants are doing here. All right. So... Um, Anyway, so he brings you right back in and said, hey, how come you didn't go home last night? Have you been on a journey? Have you been in war? Why don't you go home to your house? And Uriah said, well, the ark is in a tent and uh, the soldiers are on the battlefield. The servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Should I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? Why would I have uh, all those 
perks of uh, civilian life and peacetime when uh, my soldiers don't. So by your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Remarkable vow that he takes. Anyway, so then he tries to get him drunk in verse 13. How many sins is David doing here? Right? Contributing to drunkenness and trying to eat and drink before and made him drunk. The evening went out to lie in his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to the house. Well, now there's nothing else to do except murder. And David has just the man to do it. Joab is uh, more than willing to uh, take care of that kind of stuff. Now, makes me wonder, has he done this before? <laughs> right? So, um, verse 26. When the uh, wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. You know, she, uh, I mean, she didn't mind committing adultery, but she didn't want him dead. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife, and then she bore him a son. But the thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yeah, it's no kidding. All right, now, there's the failure, and this is David's greatest failure. In fact, this is the one that will be written of for centuries afterwards, this is the one that it has a divine commentary on in, in Chronicles that said that every king after David is going to be graded according to the David standard. All right? And the David standard is the pinnacle. But even the pinnacle mentions, other than the one incident with Bathsheba, the David standard is the standard for being king. All right. Now the judgment. And here's the uh, here's the Veggie Tale chapter. This is the one with uh... all right. So Nathan comes to him. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, "And here's the story. There were two men in one city. There once was a man, a very rich man. I can almost sing the Veggie Tale song." All right, so David's anger, verse 5. David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to David, as the Lord lives. And boy, the language on this is so amazing. It's almost like the words out of Uriah's mouth when he says, as my Lord lives, as your soul lives, by your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Remember, that was the language that Uriah used. And now uh, David says, "As as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And that's when Nathan nails him. You are the man. This whole message was about you. One it was it was a metaphor. It was all about one about sheep. Who cares about sheep? It's about you, David. All right. Thus you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now what's, what we want to? I don't want to back up too too much, but the best part of this chapter. You want to know what the best part of chapters eleven and twelve is? The best part of chapters 11 and 12 is that they come after chapter 7. The best part of of 11 and 12 is that they follow the Davidic covenant in in 2 Samuel chapter 7. All right? It's the same thing with the Tamar story. It's the same thing with all of these examples whereby we have a covenant. We have an unconditional covenant. And then we have people messing up. Okay? Okay? With, uh, with Tamar and Judah, the fact was, was that the, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That there is prophecy related to Judah. Judah is the line of Christ. Judah is the plan of God. Well, Judah the person messed up. Okay? 
Judah the person with his sons and, and, and the ugliness of, of that chapter, what's God going to do now? He made promises. He has a plan for Judah. All right? And Judah's sin does not derail the plan of God. He's made unconditional covenant promises to David. David's sin does not affect the unconditional covenant promises to David. Does that make sense? So the fact that chapter 7 lays forth the unconditional I will is huge. And then in chapter 12, when judgment comes, nothing in here negates the Davidic covenant. So when he says, uh, you are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul, I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. David was polygamous, but part of that polygamy was assigned to him by, by the Lord himself. He was assigned as the new king to take custody of the old king's harem. All right. I mean, what else are you going to do? Do what the pagans do? Just murder them all? Kill all the kids? What are you going to do? All right. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. See, God is always willing to give more. He's always willing to give beyond what we could ask or think. And even when He gives the greatest that anyone's ever had, there's more to be had if you're serving the Lord, if you're asking, and, and so forth. This is, not, this is very similar to, to Jesus in the millennium. Jesus sits on the throne of David in the millennium, but he has even more that the Father has promised him. He says, ask me, and I will give even the ends of the earth as your possession. All right. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? despising the word of the Lord, despising the Davidic covenant. And it's the same thing we do in our carnality. We're despising the gospel of grace. We are trampling underfoot the Lamb of God when we willfully, defiantly sin. Hebrews calls it that. All right? Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with a sword of the sons of Ammon. You might have used an agent to do it, but it was by your order. You're the one that did it. Therefore, the sword... Now, what it doesn't say in verse 10 is, therefore, I'm revoking the Davidic covenant. Does not say that, cannot say that. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The sword shall never depart from your house. There's a reason why the Davidic throne has to be regained by the sword at Armageddon. All right? The, 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 the kingdom of God cannot come through just some kind of a fanciful, mythological, uh, oh, we're going to just give the gospel and convert the world and bring in this uh, wonderful positive volition around the world kind of a thing, and then we'll hand the millennium to Jesus when he gets here. It, it cannot come without the sword because the house of David has been placed under this judgment. So the son of David will come with the biggest sword of all. A sword will proceed from his mouth. All right. So, goes on to say, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. 
There will be temporal life adversity all your days. Just because you confess your sin and are restored back to fellowship, does that is that a no more consequences way of escape? There will be consequences. There will be lifelong consequences. As it says on the screen, God's judgment upon David created hardship and heartache for his polygamous house. For the rest of his life, damage has been done. He pays a price. His wives pay the price. His children pay the price. His nation pays the price. So I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight, a public display. Yeah, nothing is more humiliating. Uh, he's going to be crushed. He's going to be humiliated. And it's going to be very public. The whole nation will observe it. Okay, When you're talking bedroom issues, you're talking issues that men are very uh, touchy, <laughs> uh, sensitive, hurt. Okay, Indeed, you did it secretly. I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. You know how close he was to the sin unto death? That close. The only thing that kept him from instantaneous sin unto death was his instantaneous confession. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. So the firstborn son of David and Bathsheba is the son that dies. The son that does not live beyond the week. Okay? And that's what happens here in the rest of this chapter. David is praying. He's interceding. He have all the things. I mean, this is what woke him up. This rebuke from Nathan. I think the impact of this is extraordinary. So much so that he names a son Nathan. All right? And Nathan is the line through which uh, Jesus is descended in uh, Mary's genealogy, recorded in the book of, of Luke. So he has a son, Solomon, and he has a son, Nathan, named after this prophet here, no question. So, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick, and we know how this happens. David, therefore, inquired of God for the child. He fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. Now, this is remarkable because surely he shall die. I mean, this is, this is dying, he shall die. This is certainty. This is like uh, Adam and Eve in the tree. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. This child shall surely die. And uh, so what does David do? Well, he goes and he starts praying. Why? Well, who knows? Who knows? You get his mo- David uh, confesses his motivation in verse 22. Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. Who knows? Okay? He knows what he's been told. And he knows that God's not a liar. But he also knows that God is a God of grace. And so, he gives God the chance to be the God of grace. And God does not apply it. God applies the justice. God's also a God of justice. David accepts it. Now that he's died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I will go to him. This baby dies before the age of accountability. This baby is not going to be cast into the torment side of the great chasm 
Remember in, in Sheol, there's a great gulf that's fixed, and there's Abraham's bosom on the one side where there's comfort and uh, so forth, and then there's torment on the other side. Which side is this baby going to? Well, David said, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Quite clearly. This, this is one of the most powerful statements we have in all the Scripture for the age of accountability and for the grace that is applied. Yes, God is a God of grace. God is gracious. And uh, so you end up with uh, uh, miscarriages or stillborn or, or infants or children under the age of accountability, not old enough to accept or reject the gospel. All right. Then, boy, the grace in this. David comforted his wife Bathsheba. You know, it's he's got all those other women. You got your hand out there? I mean, look at all those wives. Look at all those women. Um, but none of those other women just lost their baby. Bathsheba did. So he comforts her, goes into her, lays with her, gave birth to a son, and she named him Solomon. Now, this is, this is what's awesome. You, you, want, you want confirmation that God doesn't hate you for the rest of your life? He will administer justice on you for the rest of your life, but he doesn't hate you. All right, There are consequences, but he doesn't hate you. The Lord loved him. He named him Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Named him peace. Why did he name him peace? Because that's what David and Bathsheba had. They had peace. And you talk about adultery and murder and the loss of a child. Well, what are we going to do now? Well, we're going to have peace. And we're going to start a new family. All right. So, the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet. And he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Dedicated to the Lord. Beloved of the Lord. It's unfortunate that we don't see Solomon claim that name Jedidiah in his reign. But he maintains the name of, uh, of peace. All right. So, God's judgment upon David created hardship and heartache for his polygamous house. And we see it. We see it. We see it chapter by chapter by chapter. There's more war in chapter 12. There's uh, the rape of a sister in chapter 13. And this clearly is rape in uh, chapter 13. There's uh, abs- <clears throat> brother killing brother in revenge for the rape of chapter 13. There's uh, rebellion on David's throne. There's the taking of David's wives in broad daylight. All right. The rest of 2 Samuel seems pretty uh, gloomy. David finally gets his throne back, but there's more revolts. There's more adversary. There's more uh, murder. Then David dies. Now, as we get to the end of this, let's get to 1 Kings. I don't want to end with that. That's kind of gloomy, isn't it? Now, 15 minutes. Let's try to cheer some things up here. Let me rewrite that point. David's greatest temporal life blessing was Bathsheba. David's greatest temporal life blessing was Bathsheba. She was his greatest failure. 
So what are they going to do? They're going to dwell on all the mistakes they made before before marriage, or are they going to do better after marriage? His greatest temporal life blessing was Bathsheba. And the role that we see with her after David dies, and even in the months leading up to his death, the role that we see with her in securing Solomon's reign on the throne. But mostly, what we see in the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Um, I'll take the Proverbs first, and then we'll back up and get the, the politics of it if we have time. Otherwise, we'll just save it for next week. Oh, thank you. That's right. We will not be here next week. Well, I better go two hours today then, if we can. No, that's right. VBS next week. Okay. No class next week. Thank you. God's grace upon David and Bathsheba permitted the impartation of divine wisdom to David's final batch of children. Final batch. Okay. If you're if you're going to be polygamous, you're going to have your children in batches. And I will apologize right here and now if you are offended by the term batch. Okay? You should be more offended by the polygamy. But batches, I felt, was nicer than litter. All right? If, uh, I mean, polygamy is almost like breeding cattle or something. It's almost like animal husbandry. You've got your stud and you've got your... Um, Mother stock. I've got a handout too, by the way, and, and we'll use this in a couple of weeks as well. But when you notice these brothers, you look at these troublemakers. Um, you can skip over the ancestors, brothers, and sisters, but I mean they're they're good to know because that sister Zeruiah is the mother of uh, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. That's going to be important. That makes them his nephews. Remember, David had some knucklehead nephews, even as as uh, Jesus had the sons of thunder, knucklehead cousins of uh, James and John. Uh, the nephews of David, the wives of David, here we go, and then the sons and daughter of David there. And um, probably the best thing we can say we love the fact that uh, Abigail, it's, it's, he married another widow there because Nabal was a fool. And um, The best thing we can say about Chiliab or Daniel is that um, he never appears again for the rest of the Bible record. <laughs> okay? He wasn't a uh, troublemaker. I think it reflects on Abigail's role as a mother and whatever parentage David and Abigail gave to Chiliab is that uh, he was not the problem that uh, Amnon was, or Abner, or not Abner, but Absalom, okay? Makah was the wife that became the mother of Absalom and Tamar. Makah means oppression. Do you really want to marry a woman whose name means oppression? doesn't seem like that would make for a positive marital experience. But we learn that uh, she's the daughter of a king, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. So he's making political marriages here. And here's Absalom, who's not only the son of a king, but the grandson of a king, and it's causing trouble. He'll end up being the rebel. He'll take the throne. 
Uh, Chagath means festive. So I suppose you have a party wife. She's the mother of Adonijah. There's the problem. Adonijah is the one that's going to steal the throne before Solomon can sit on it. Abital, mother of Shephatiah. Again, there's another quiet son and so forth. Eglah, meaning heifer. I laugh at that one. Who names your daughter Heifer? That's not a flattering name for a woman. And then there's Bathsheba. The final named wife. The final named wife. And this is significant. There were other wives. There were other concubines. And there are other children born in Jerusalem besides the four that Bathsheba bears. Bathsheba bears four children. And uh, of those four, it appears to, I call them the batch, David's final batch of wisdom. What we learn is, as these four children are being born, Solomon and, and Nathan and the other two, all right, as those four are being born, and I forget the other two's names. Uh, oh, wait, there they are. I should have just checked on my own handout. There we go. It's almost Bob, Shobab. Shobab and Shemia, yeah. Solomon, Shemia, Shobab, and Nathan. Those are the four. And as they raise that batch, that crop, that group, okay, um, they instilled within them the values of the Word of God. The values of the Word of God. And for that, we look at all these references in Proverbs. Let's take a look at these. Proverbs 1.8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Okay? It takes a father and a mother. And both are going to have contributions. Verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Okay? This is a parental exhortation to a child, recognizing that there's other people out there beyond your household. Sinners. People that, now who's not a sinner, right? When the Bible talks about sinners, we're talking about folks that don't have any spiritual mindset of any sort whatsoever. They're not even attempting. They're not even, it's like when uh, Jesus is talking about the tax collectors and the sinners. Well, who's not a sinner? The fact is a sinner is a person that is absolutely irreligious, doesn't even make a show of it, has no spiritual mindset at all. They're just living in the world for the world. That's their frame of mind. So people you encounter that are not being brought up in your family's norms and standards. And parents need to warn children about that. Verse 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. Not only is it that you're not participating with them, you're on an entirely different path. Don't even go on that path. Chapter 2 and verse 1, my son, if you will receive my words. See, that's a big if, isn't it? Okay? You can prevent, present all the wisdom in the world. You can teach all the doctrine under the sun. They still have to receive it. They still have to value it. You wonder, are they listening? And if they are listening, do they value it? Are they treasuring it? Treasure my commandments within you. Remember, it's the word that's treasured in your heart that becomes the prophylactic against sin. Thy word I have treasured in my heart. Not just thy word my dad told me about. Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. 
in Psalm 119. Uh, chapter 3. My son, do not forget my teaching. So maybe you heard it, maybe you listened, maybe you treasured it, but you've got to review it. Don't forget it. Go back to it again and again and again. Let your heart keep my commandments. Don't just be a hearer only that deludes themselves. Be a doer of the word. Let your heart, <clears throat> let your heart keep my commandments. Verse 11. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. This is where the book of Hebrews quotes Proverbs. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Discipline doesn't mean the father doesn't love you. Discipline means they're just the opposite. The father does love you. The unloved son is the one the father doesn't discipline. The son of the concubine that's not even acknowledged as a son is without discipline. All right? Because what house is he under? What roof does he sleep under? Well, what roof does the dad sleep under? Okay, that's, again, polygamy confuses things because each woman has her own roof. Which roof does he sleep under? The dad that has all those wives. All right. Verse uh, 21. My son... Let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. In other words, it can't, it's not just a short-term thing. It's not just a take-it-or-leave-it thing. It's not just Bible class every so often. Don't let them vanish from your sight. You know, a few weeks have gone by and you haven't made a Bible class. Well, what's happened? It's vanished from your sight. Chapter 4, verse 1, verse 3. I'm going to run out of time. <coughs> But here we have the mother mentioned again. Most of these are just my son, my son. Because what's happening here is Solomon is restating what he learned from David and Bathsheba and he is now composing them in his book of Proverbs, addressing them to his son. Which one? He had thousands. From which woman? Which one? He had thousands. Okay. Interestingly enough, he multiplies the sons here. Here, O sons, plural, the instruction of a father. Sometimes the class is one-on-one. Sometimes it's all the, the batch of children together. Give attention that you may gain understanding. Verse 3 of chapter 4. When I was a son to my father, you see this? The author is, is passing along what he received in his day. Tender and the only son in the sight of my mother. Well, yeah, because her firstborn died, and now she has peace, who the Lord renames Jedediah, beloved of the Lord, tender, and the only son on the side of my mother. Sorry, Shobab and Shemiah and Nathan, and Nathan, okay? That first one, the first one that lives, has that uh, tender spot in her heart there. All right, verse 10, verse 20. Hear my son and accept my sayings and the years of your life will be many. My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Not just pay attention, but be eager. Don't just grudgingly listen because I'm making you listen. Be eager to listen. Incline your ear. Be ready to hear. Chapter 5. 
My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Because you think you have understanding. Pay attention to my understanding. Verse 7. Now then, my sons, plural, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. This is the, in all these warnings about the strange woman, the lips of the adulteress. Your boy needs to know this. Um, all right. Then chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 3. My son, if you become surety for your neighbor and giving yourself for a stranger. Okay, so it's not all women problems. There could be money problems. Verse 3. Do this then, my son, and deliver yourself since you've come into the hand of your neighbor. How do you interface with your community, with your city, the judges and the gates? Verse 20, my son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Then chapter 7, verse 1 and verse 24. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. This becomes your intimate friend. Verse uh, 24, finally, therefore, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways, nor stray to her past. The problem is, if you're not transformed by the renewing of your mind, what's going to happen? You're going to be conformed to this age. You're going to be you're going to be ensnared. You're going to go the route, and uh, your heart will be turned astray. You will stray into her past. Many of the victims she has cast down. You're not the first. You won't be the last. Numerous are all her slain. All right, we'll come back in two weeks and uh, take a look at the death of David, take a look at his monogamy, even when uh, they bring him the, the bed warmer there, um, he doesn't touch her, okay, and uh, what does that reflect? Some would say it reflects a spiritual priority, others would say it reflects a sick old man, um, or both. But we'll uh, take a look at the text for what it is. And we'll see the uh, neglect. David had failed to secure the transition, failed to secure the succession uh, until the point that Bathsheba highlighted his uh, woeful neglect. So we'll talk about that as well. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word, for all the lessons you have for us. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.